Our scripture for today, this morning and for this evening is found in 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 to 10. If you have your Bibles with you, it's open with me in 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 to 10. This morning we will look at the first four verses and verses 5 to 10 for our evening service. But let me read the whole chapter 1 for us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this thing so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Let's pray. O oh God, we come to you today for your help and your blessing. Lord, what we know not, teach us. Lord, what we have not, give us. Lord, what we are not, make us. May the preaching of your word serve as the means of grace as we receive it with faith so we can respond in worship and obedience to you, our God. Hear our prayer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Once again, happy Lord's Day, brothers and sisters in Christ. This, is, this will be the first message I will be preaching here in America. And yes, I am so excited to be here at Faith URC. But I am also very homesick with my home church in the Philippines. I came here with my wife, JC, and my three children, Yuel Alethea, Yuan Carix, and Yuan Teus. And we really miss our covenant family in the Philippines. And one of the many things I really miss when we were attending our home church, the name of the church is Pilgrim Community Church. We are a confessional Presbyterian church under the International Presbyterian Church in Europe. One thing that I really miss is that at the very beginning of the worship service, an elder or a minister would go in front and before calling people to worship, 
they would start by introducing who Pilgrim Community Church strives to be known for. It was a reminder to the church members and at the same time a very important information for those who are visiting the church. Pilgrim Community Church is known for three things. We are Christ-centered, gospel-shaped, and together for good. Christ-centered, gospel-shaped, and together for good. We want to be known as a church not primarily by the confessions that we firmly believe, but ultimately as a community of believers united in Christ. More than the propositions, we make it of first importance, the person of Jesus Christ. To be Christ-centered naturally leads to having gospel-shaped lives. And our personal life, family life, our congregational life, and our vocations. And lastly, we want to be known as a community, not only faithful to our local congregation, but also as a witness to the world, together for good, all for the gospel's sake. And that is basically what my sermon this morning is all about. The central idea is knowing Christ, being churched, and living as witness for him. Christ-centered, gospel-shaped, and together for good. The title of our message this morning is The Believer's Fellowship with the Word of Life. I will be sharing two points from our passage, and I have prepared keywords for the children to take note of. The first point is knowing Jesus Christ is confessing that He is the Word of Life. The keyword, supreme, or to make it more for the kids, super. Now the second point is knowing Jesus Christ is testifying that he gives eternal life. The keyword, savior, supreme, and savior. Remember these keywords, and kids, if you want to learn more about them, you can ask your parents when you get home. And ask them what they mean in the light of today's message. Now, the first epistle of John did not open with a salutation. It's very unique, unlike the second and third epistles. And we can assume that 1 John is more of a personal letter rather than a letter which is a written sermon or formal address. It is rightly so, considering the situation of the church who the apostles was writing to. There were false teachers in the church. And there were members, former members, who were deceived by them. And they eventually left the church. And as we are all coming from our beloved tradition, one distinctive that we are always passionate about is our, our high view of the local church or the local congregation. So while it is true that this particular epistle of John is known for teaching about the assurance of salvation, being aware of the context will tell us that this doctrine, particularly in this book, was not primarily taught to teach essential doctrine to baby Christians, as it is always included, you know, in our membership class. But it was taught and preached by the Apostle John to encourage the believers. And he also used this doctrine to charge them 
to live by its implications. Now, if you look at our passage, the Apostle John made sure to start his teaching in the very person of Christ. The assurance of our faith, the encouragement that it brings, and the response that it begs from us are all founded and grounded in the doctrine of the person of Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Apostle John is implying the truth that Jesus is supreme. The more technical term that we use for this is that Christ is preeminent. The preeminence of Christ, which is probably familiar to us and to those who are not, let me explain briefly. The preeminence of Christ speaks of His being first and foremost. The first phrase in verse 1 is foundational in the whole theme of this epistle. And it definitely speaks of Christ's preeminence. The Apostle John says, That which was from the beginning. The Apostle John was not simply talking about the time he was able to be with Jesus Christ. He was talking about the essence of Christ as the beginning of all things. Referencing to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning God. We can know that by going back to his gospel account where he said in John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John opened his epistle with this wonderful doctrine of Christ's preeminence. Jesus is supreme. Now, why is it important to believe the preeminence of Christ? Well, number one, because Christ is God. So what? Now, if Christ is our preeminent God, therefore He is our Creator, our Savior, our Sustainer, and our Perfector. Solus Christus in Christ alone, while it primarily speaks about the sovereign work of Christ in our salvation, it is very much and equally true that Jesus is also sovereign to sustain us and to sanctify us unto perfection. And yes, and that includes His sovereignty over unfortunate events that the church to whom John was writing was experiencing during that time. Jesus is supreme. He is sovereign that which was from beginning. It can also be translated as who was from the beginning. Therefore, this phrase meant to say Jesus is our eternal God. And if He is, then we can trust Him and rest our hearts in Him. To appreciate more what does this phrase imply, it's important to consider historical context. Now, during that time, there are two primary, primary, primary recipients of the gospel message. The Jewish people and the Gentiles, particularly in that Greco-Roman era. Now, for the Jewish people, again, the phrase in the beginning is so familiar to them because it is the same uh, as the first phrase in the first book of Moses, in the beginning, 
God. So preaching that Jesus is the beginning is implying that Jesus is God. And I believe the gospel account of John accomplished that. He is saying he is God and he is the Messiah that the Jewish people is waiting for. Jehovah Mephalti, the Lord is my deliverer. Now, on the other hand, for the Greco-Roman world, which is very much influenced by Greek philosophy, hearing the word beginning definitely rings a bell. The word beginning came from its regional word, arche which was the word they used to pertain to the first beginning, first principle of the universe. And if you are familiar, Greek philosophy has been searching for that first principle ever since. The quintessence of all things. The one that explains everything. The beginning. The arche. So when the Apostle John attributed to Jesus Christ, the word beginning, he was saying that the first principle that you are looking for, and guess what? He is not a mere principle. He is not a mere ideology. He is not a mere formula. He is a person. And that person, Jesus Christ, is God And that God became man. That is why when you look at our passage, it is also important to consider the word or the term word or logos. We can see that in the latter part of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2. The word of life, the life was made manifest. The use of the term word in our passage speaks about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Again, This echoes what John wrote in his gospel account in chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So whenever John used the term word in this epistle, he was referencing to the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So you see, if you look at the first four verses, it's not a salutation. It's actually a very doctrinally loaded four verses. John was speaking about the preeminence of Christ and he was speaking about the incarnation of Christ. And the believers in the church were, you know, discouraged. My friend left the church. There were false teachers in the church. We can actually assume that probably there was a church split. It was painful. But John started not by you know, life coaching but by teaching the doctrines of the preeminence of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. We will appreciate these doctrines as we move forward. But John was saying the first principle is not a principle. He is a true person and he is the prince of peace, not a principle. The God who was made manifest. The beginning and the word. Jesus is supreme. And His supremacy is not the kind that is unreachable. His supremacy was revealed in His incarnation. And His incarnation 
was necessary for him to be able to die the death we should have died and live the perfect life we could not live, which are the two demands of the law, payment for sins and perfection of the law. So when we talk about the preeminence of Christ, we are talking about it as foundational, not only in our justification, but as well as in our sanctification. And we will talk more about this later. But beloved, you see, we are not Jewish people and we are not Gentiles living in that Greco-Roman era. But we are living now in this postmodern world where individuals define their own selfish first principle of how they want to live their lives and no one has the right to put them accountable. We live in a postmodern world where no one wants to be saved because no one believes that they are sinners or that they believe that they are too sinful to be saved anyway so they just continue to live sinfully. We live in a postmodern world where Jesus is not preeminent he is not first and foremost. Either people do not need Jesus, or people need Jesus but not for who He is according to the Scripture. And they only use Him and His love wrongly to justify their sins. Love wins. We live in this postmodern world and nothing is more important in our Christian life than to believe the preeminence of Christ, that He is first and foremost. Beloved, we can even look at the Christian life and probably would be guilty of the same sins. Let me ask you, is Jesus first and foremost in your life? Is Jesus Christ the center of your marriage? And family? Is your communion with Him a deal breaker in how you choose your career and job and friends and leisures? Is your seminary education, your personal study of the scripture, your catechetical studies with your brethren, are they aimed to becoming more like Christ? Are they helping you to mortify your sins? day in and day out so that you are becoming more and more like Christ in holiness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ is the ancient of days. He is the oldest of us all. Not that He has a beginning, but that He is before all things. So, beloved, behold Him supreme in your life. Behold Him supreme in your marriage. Behold Him supreme in your home. Behold Him supreme in your vocations. Behold Him supreme in your finances and stewardship. Behold Him supreme in this church. Behold Him supreme in this pulpit. Children, as you grow older, remember, become like Jesus Christ. He must be first and foremost in our lives. A Puritan, Stephen Charnock, said, The ancient of days is to be served before all that are younger than himself. Our fellowship with Jesus Christ, the word of life, is founded on the doctrine of Christ's preeminence 
that we are first redeemed to Himself as a creator-creature relationship. See that? If Christ is preeminent, then He is our creator. And the goal of justification is to first restore that creator-creature relationship. The paradise in the Garden of Eden redeemed by Jesus Christ on Calvary's hill, and we are now paradise dwellers, meaning we are worshipers of God. So if we understand our salvation not only in the light of a Savior sinner, but as well as the Creator creature, then we will realize that we are saved to worship our Creator. From that truth flows a doxological life. John Calvin said, The first foundation of righteousness undoubtedly is the worship of God. And Jesus in the Gospel account of Matthew reminded his disciples of that first principle. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So Jesus as the beginning leads us to live a life of righteousness. Now take a, take a look at our passage again. Verse 1, after John said, That which was from the beginning, he was referring to Jesus. He said, Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who was from the beginning, who we have heard, who we have seen with our eyes, who we looked upon, and who have touched, we have touched with our hands, who is the word of life. Now, it is possible that the Apostle John was the only living apostle when he wrote this epistle. And notice how he used the word we. Right? Who we have heard. We have seen. We have touched with our hands. This establishes his apostolic authority. And most likely, he was referencing to other of the apostles who by that time have gone to be with the Lord. But they were witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And John establishing his apostolic authority is important. Yes? Why? Because one of the main reasons John wrote this epistle is to address a heresy, a false teaching, the false teachers, and warn the Christians about them. So the main reason why John put emphasis in him being a witness is to establish his credibility as an apostle of Christ and to exhort his recipients to listen to him and remember his teachings and be founded in them in order not to be easily persuaded by false teachings. Now, if you're familiar, the name of the false teaching is Gnosticism. And Gnosticism believes that the spirit is good and the matter or the flesh is evil. They are teaching that you can actually access that special knowledge in order to be saved. What is that special knowledge? No one knows. It's Basically, a new age concept. A new 
knowledge, a new teaching. And John was establishing his apostolic authority. I am an apostle of Christ. I have seen him. I have heard him. I receive from him the message that I'm giving you. You listen to this words and not to this false teachings. Now, the false teaching is Gnosticism, right? But in the early years of Gnosticism, there is this one false teaching which is called Docetism, D-O-C-E, that John was actually addressing uh, in this in this epistle, and Docetism believes that Jesus has no physical body, and it will make sense why John, in the beginning, was making an emphasis. No, we have seen him, we have heard him, we have touched him with our hands, and it makes sense, right? Because if spirit is good and matter is evil, according to Gnosticism, then Christ cannot be a man. He will be impure. He needs to be pure spirit only in order for him to be blameless. And so, that's the first one. Jesus has no physical body. And number two, there is a special knowledge which no one knows, and that is the way to be saved. Now, the emphasis that John is making in these four verses makes sense, right? Which we have heard. We have touched with our hands. We proclaim to you. So two things. Jesus is real. Jesus had a real body. He really died on the cross. You see, the foolishness of Gnosticism and Docetism, they are the antithesis of Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. If Jesus Christ had no physical body, then how is his death penal? In order for sins to be forgiven, blood is shed. It's penal. And if Christ has no physical body, then Christ's death was not penal. Therefore, Docetism and Gnosticism are wrong. Second, he was saying, I am an apostle, and together with other apostles, we have received the message ourselves. Therefore, you must listen to me and not to the false teachers. Jesus is a real person. And it is no secret what he proclaimed to them about eternal life in the gospel account of John. We see that, how a sinner is saved. Jesus has a real body, and Jesus saves according to the scripture. When we lose our foundations, when we lose our tradition, Rich tradition, rich reform tradition, when we lose our confessions, when we lose our creeds, it is when false teachers are bred. It is when ignorant Christians are led astray. It is when spineless professing believers are exposed. There is no secret message. The scripture is clear and sufficient. Me and my wife, we run an online reform bookshop in the Philippines. The name is Coram Deo Books. You can check it in Facebook. But it was born during the pandemic. 
Okay, it has been a blessing to us and to the Reformed community in the Philippines as well. And uh, I would like to believe that Coram Deo Books is probably that secret key why I was admitted at Mid-America Reform Seminary. Anyways, Reformed resources are put at the back shelf of some big Christian bookstores in the Philippines. Guess what kinds of books they put in front shelves? Exactly. Books of false teachers. The first person you will see at the front shelf is the same name as me. Joel. Joel Austin. Bestseller. And that's a Christian bookstore. You will see prosperity gospel books, moralistic and self-help garbages, and there is always that new book every time that will tell you that they have found new perspectives about faith and everything else. And it's always on the bestseller shelves. Why? Because people always look for a new way to do things. A very postmodernistic approach to life. Ten new steps in Christian maturity that the church fathers and reformers missed. A paradigm shift in how to do discipleship and church planting to contextualize the gospel and redeem the culture. Before coming here, I heard a missionary preach in the Philippines. He said, don't bring the unbelievers to the church. Plant a church in that Buddhist home. Plant a church in that, in that Muslim home. Don't invite them to church. And I'm a missionary's kid. I've been to a Muslim community in the southern part of the Philippines. And though my father is a missionary, though we disagree with a lot of things, he's not reformed, he's anti-reformed actually, but one thing that I really appreciate in their church planting programs is that wherever they go, whether that be a Muslim community or not, the goal is to plant a church because in that church is where the ordinary means of grace is entrusted by God. That's where Christ builds his church. And that's where Christ sends his people outside to preach the gospel of Christ. Contextualization. We even now have in the Philippines an Asian Christian theology that contextualizes a lot of important doctrines in the culture, in the animistic teaching in Asia. The false teachings that the, the apostles faced back then is essentially the same with what the world is teaching our children and our churches right now. And sometimes we also fall into that same trap. We ask how do we make our church more seeker-sensitive how do we make a stand on a particular social issues without being offensive? How do we become friends with everyone in every issue? And then you start to forget your confessions and your traditions. We think we need to go to a retreat or camp in order to revive our spirituality as if there is something very special in, in a campsite that is not 
in the church. Right? But I grew up grow, going to camps. You know? Every time. Every after the camp. The last night. I would always, I, I cannot even remember how many times I raised my hand and come forward from, to a um, when, when the minister would call everyone to stand and surrender their lives. I've surrendered my lives to Jesus hundreds of times in youth camps. I only got saved when I was 16 years old. People are always looking for that special method and special message to cater for their very special personal needs. Beloved, the means of grace are what God uses to grow His church into Christ-likeness. The faithful preaching of the Word, the sacraments and prayers of the believers for one another. No special message needed. No tweaking this and tweaking that to be more impactful. God uses ordinary means. That's the antithesis of Gnosticism, right? Special knowledge. Special. Ordinary means. God used ordinary means. And we are to always be diligent in making use of them. Westminster Shorter Catechism questions 88 reminds us of this truth. It asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of, rede of redemption. And the catechism's answer is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if our goal is to behold Jesus supreme in our lives, then we must strive to get more of Jesus. And we get more of Jesus by diligently using the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Knowing the person of Jesus is to behold Him supreme over all and to glorify Him in all things. But the second point as well as making him known. Jesus Christ is testifying that he gives eternal life. This is interesting because there are two images that John used. Fellowship with God and with God's people, the proclamation of the gospel. Now, from verses 2 to 4, let me read again. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. According to our passage, the proclamation of eternal life has two goals. That those who receive it might have fellowship with us and fellowship with God. And by accomplishing these goals, our joy is made complete. Now, two quick things. Number one, knowing Christ is having fellowship with God and with one another. Let's not forget that. One of the most important ends that we should remember whenever we proclaim the gospel to unbelievers is that we also have the same obligation to point them to a fellowship in a local congregation, hoping that that person shall become a covenant member. 
As the Westminster Confession states that the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God out of which there is no possibility possibility of salvation normatively. Okay? For in this doctrine is founded as well the practicality of how we will be living a life of godliness, which we will talk about tonight specifically. So we are the called out ones, but we are not called to be alone. We are an assembly. John's charge to proclaim the gospel, proclaim eternal life, he made sure to put importance, not only a restored relationship with God, but a communal relationship with the local congregation. We are called to have fellowship with God and it's not mutually exclusive with the call to have fellowship with one another. But this fellowship is never without a mission. To bring the gospel to the world and offer them the fellowship they can have with God and with God's people. And proclaim to them that this fellowship has eternal value which will be the source of their unspeakable joy and hope and comfort in life and that is why to have fellowship with God is to have fellowship in His body. And this fellowship brings about a natural desire and joy to proclaim the gospel. And we will close our message with this charge. We have the fullness of joy in the proclamation of the gospel. Verse 4, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. To be complete in a sense from its Original word is to fill to the full, but that of immaterial things. This is such a beautiful picture of what real fulfillment looks like. The giving and proclaiming of the message of the gospel makes our joy complete. Another interesting angle is that we can also say that while it is true that the proclamation of the gospel makes our joy complete, it can also be said that since our joy is complete in our union with Christ as the word of life, then joyfully pro- proclaiming the gospel comes naturally. Beloved, are we, living in, are we living a Christian life that testifies to the goodness of God? Whether in your vocation, in your schools, and family, being good to our neighbor is our testimony of God's goodness in us. And that is why to be united with Christ is inseparable by being good to our neighbors. How are we doing in that respect? Are your actions and words and decisions bear the fruit of the Spirit? You do not need to go on a mission trip in order to testify to the glorious gospel of God. You can testify to it by living out the implications of the gospel in your life. But remember, while our lives testify to the goodness of God, our lives is not and will never be the gospel. The very meaning of the word gospel is that it needs to be proclaimed from the rooftop. And yes, words are necessary. The logic is simple. The power of God unto salvation of sinners 
is through the faithful preaching of the gospel message. Gnosticism doesn't have a special message. They don't have that special knowledge to salvation. That knowledge is the knowledge of Jesus Christ living the life we could not live and dying the death we should have died. That is the gospel message. Remember that we cannot reason anyone into the kingdom of God. You cannot, by your mere testimony, convert someone into Christianity. Only the proclaimed unadulterated gospel is what saves sinners. It's not our innovations. It's not our creativity. John was saying, Christ was made manifest, and this is the gospel we proclaim to you. This is the gospel of eternal life. The believers that John was writing to were discouraged. They were in pain. It's a church split, most likely. And when it was my first year in the ministry after studying for five years in a Bible college, my first year, the church split. Not because of me. But I was there and it was very painful. Some relationships just, you know, reconciled recently and it was more than 12 years ago. Some relationships would probably be healed when they, when we enter eternity. But the believers that John was writing to were discouraged. They were in pain losing family members and friends to false teachings and worldliness. Like the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15, after addressing all the issues in the church, he said, you know what? This is of first importance. The gospel. The gospel that is preached from the pulpit. That Jesus Christ is supreme. That he is preeminent. It is the one thing that determines everything else. Of course, we don't go around encouraging people or a mother who has miscarriage and say Jesus is preeminent. A brother who lost his father, Jesus is preeminent. We don't do that. You see? Get what I get, get the point? But this is foundational in the way we face all life's troubles in this sick, fallen world. That Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sovereign, which was from the beginning. We received the word of life. Concretely speaking, this is realized in our diligent use of God's ordinary means of grace. Now, if there's someone here and you are listening and you do not know Christ, or you believe that you have profession of faith in Christ but has not turned away from your sinful ways and you have been intentionally disobeying the call of God and living a life that is contrary to the sovereignty of Christ, you must repent of that sin. Call to Christ today. Confess with your mouth that He is Lord. 
and believe that He came to die for your sins and that He was buried and was raised from the dead, call to Him as your Savior and repent of your sins and you will be saved. Beloved, today, be encouraged. Rejoice, for we have received eternal life. We have an eternal hope. And when our eyes are set on eternal things, then it changes the way we see everything else today. It changes the way we live here and now. Jesus is supreme. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us that Jesus Christ, our Lord, reigns supreme. That he is not only the Savior of sinners, but he also sustains us in our lives as we struggle with sinfulness every day, as we struggle with the effects of this fallen world in our health, in our relationships, in our vocations. We thank you because Jesus is supreme. May you help us to always live our lives fixing our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This we ask and pray.